0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the front lines, discuss news from the EU, and do a deep dive into the shifting alliances and influence of Russia and China over the Central Asian states. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable
2: hardships to finally reward you with victory. We
1: need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield
0: to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 7th of September one year and 197 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, Weekend Foreign Editor, Arthur Scott Geddes, China correspondent, Sophia Yan, investigative journalist and film producer, Jack Leather, and Telegraph correspondent and editor of the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin, James Kilmer. I started by asking Joe Barnes to talk us through some updates around the Ukrainian counter-offensive.
2: Yesterday via, or in today's newspaper, yesterday online, via The Economist, we covered the comments made by Trent Moore, who is the director of analysis for the US Defense Intelligence Agency. He was essentially saying that Ukrainian forces could break through the rest of Russia's defensive lines by the end of the year. He said that there was a realistic possibility of driving through the third and final trench system essentially line of defense in that three-layered sarovkin line and this would give ukraine essentially an open route towards the sea where they could drive towards the sea of azov towards that coast and that would achieve a few things it would first it would split ukrainian sorry russian forces in the south of ukraine and the east of ukraine but i think the most important element that ukraine is trying to do they're trying to sever the line of communication that famous land bridge as it's uh, known between occupied crimea and mainland russia so some interesting points to look at what trent moore is saying he unlike a lot of american sort of analysts and officials looking at this is showing a more optimistic outlook and he bases this on first the absence of Sergei sarovkin he's the Russia's former commander of the invasion. And he basically oversaw the construction of the line of defences in the south and east of Ukraine, given his name. And then the other element he points towards as a positive is the lack and absence of the Wagner group on the battlefield. He was saying that, well, prior to his death, Yevgeny Pogoshin's sort of band of guns for hire were the main offensive weapon in russia's arsenal in terms of manpower and they're now gone and this is what trent Moore had to tell the economist had we had this conversation two weeks ago i would have been slightly pessimistic their breakthrough on that second defensive belt is actually pretty considerable and so what do we know about this ukraine is believed to have reached the second line of the so-called srovkin like kind of belt defenses late last week when it's um, when ukrainian fighters were sort of geolocated outside of Vobova, which is a village in Zaporizhia region. This village sits on the main axis of advance out of Orikhiv of Kiev's counteroffensive. one of the three main prongs we often speak about. And it's an integrated part of Moscow's defensive network and part of that land bridge defence. But what's interesting is the Ukrainians have seemingly, and we've spoken through this before, have found what they think is a weak spot around Vobova, and that's why they're targeting it. And um, so more footage that was sort of geolocated... And circulate on social media Yes, they showed Russian forces hitting new Ukrainian positions in the tree line and what's important is that those positions the Russians were hitting were once their own defensive lines so it's interesting to see how the gains are progressing and so what Mr Moore had to say is that the recent gains have been significant and he said there is a realistic possibility of Ukraine breaching the rest of those lines by the end of the year and that turn of phrase in intelligence sort of parlance uh, realistic possibility denotes a 40 to 50 percent likelihood which is quite interesting and
1: i'll stop there on that one thanks so much show we'll come back to you later for uh, some stories around the eu but can i go now to arthur scott geddes arthur there's a number of stories you've been looking at in ukraine today can you talk us through them
3: Hi, thank you. So we've seen again Russian missile strike hitting Zelensky's hometown of Krivy Ri today. One person was killed and nine others were wounded there. There's also been uh, what appears to be a Russian airstrike targeting a village in the Kherson region called Odra Dokomyanka. That led to three the deaths of three civilians and four more injuries. But Ukraine's long-range attacks targeting, targeting Russia's, well, Russian-held territory have continued as well. Russian air defences were active over Crimea this morning, shooting down a drone there. And then inside Russia, we've got uh, the Russian authorities are holding local elections this weekend in occupied parts of Ukraine. This is part of uh, an effort to tighten their grip on the territories that were annexed a year ago. Obviously, they're not some of those territories they don't fully control still. Um, Voting uh, for uh, these kind of Russian installed legislatures in Donetsk, uh, Lugansk, uh, Kherson and Zaporizhia uh, uh, begins today, uh, sorry, and uh, it will be over by Sunday. Um, obviously, this has already been uh, denounced by Kiev uh, and the West. It was uh, the Council of Europe, um, who's a human rights body uh, on the continent, described this uh, vote as a, con- uh, as a flagrant violation of international law, which Russia continues to disregard. And Kiev has echoed that sentiment. I think it was the parliament in Kiev saying that the balloting in areas where Russia conducts active hostilities uh, poses a threat to Ukrainian lives. Arthur, Elon Musk is also back in the news. Uh, Why is that? Can you tell us about this? That's right, yes. So he has had to deny that he switched off uh, his Starlink satellite internet um, after he was accused of deactivating the kind of communications network to thwart this Ukrainian uh, attack uh, on Russia's Black Sea fleet using maritime drones. Possibly more interestingly is that he's again called for an immediate truce, which is something that is likely to rile up the Ukrainians. He categorically denied these accusations about about thwarting this Ukrainian attack on Twitter. I think it was last night he said the Starlink regions in question were not activated. SpaceX did not activate anything. But then he went on to talk about this truce and he said that both sides should agree to a truce Every day that passes, more, more Ukrainian and Russian youth die to gain and lose small pieces of land with borders barely changing. This is not worth their lives. It's not the first time he's spoken out in this kind of way, but every time he does, it normally causes a bit of a stir. Those satellite terminals, by the way, were donated by SpaceX and as well as the US government and other private donors. They've become a really crucial part of Ukraine's war effort, helping with secure communications and also conducting drone attacks.
1: Thanks for talking us through that, Arthur. Uh, One more story, a bit closer to home for us in the UK, I think. What are the RAF up to in the Black Sea?
3: Yes, that's right. So it's quite interesting. Basically, Downing Street has revealed that RAF aircraft are now carrying out these flights to protect cargo vessels that are running this gauntlet out of the Black Sea, trying to carry grain out of Ukraine. Obviously, Russia's threatened to attack them. But the Ministry of Defence has basically stepped up its activity uh, in the area and is now using, I think, reconnaissance aircraft to shadow these these ships as they, as they leave Ukraine in an effort to kind of deter Russian attacks. Thanks, Arthur. I know you've got to get back to your desk, so thanks again for taking us through these stories. Joe Barnes,
1: can I come to you? There's a, a sort of tranche of stories coming out of the EU today. As our Brussels correspondent, I thought you'd be the best person to talk us through them.
2: Uh, yeah, I think since, well, before the invasion, uh, the EU has taken a back step in our sort of coverage after many years of tumultuous Brexit negotiations, but there's still, still an important sort of body to keep looking at. But I'll start with a few just comments on the Starlink story, because Musk, while he denied sort of saying they were active or taking systems away, he actually confirmed something that's been reported multiple times in saying that he refused to activate it. And this has sort of caused the Ukrainian government to throw their um, their gloves off a little bit. Uh, so Mikhailo Podlyak was like, Basically, sometimes a mistake uh, is much more than just a mistake. And by not allowing Ukrainian drones to destroy part of the Russian military fleet via Starlink, Starlink, Elon Musk has allowed the fleet to fire calibre missiles at Ukrainian cities. As a result, civilians' children are being killed. Which is a complete contrast to when I was having a similar conversation with Podolak about these reports a month or so ago. And while he said, look, we don't like the West interfering in our armed struggle, he refused to, to basically shit talk elon musk and now he's going on the internet and doing exactly that so that's that's quite interesting um but yes back to the eu and i will start with a um, comment by charles michel the european council president he's jetting off to India for the G20 summit. The EU is an observer member rather than a full member. But he has said Russia must stop its blockade of Ukrainian seaports after pulling out of that famed Black Sea Grain initiative negotiated by the UN and Turkey. Charles Michel said it's frankly scandalous that Russia, after having terminated the Black Sea Grain initiative, is blocking and attacking Ukrainian ports. This must stop. And then to a story to uh, the EU's highest court, the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. So the ECJ has ruled that the EU must list list sanctions on a top Russian technology executive. And that's the first time that the ECJ has basically ruled in favour of a Russian on the sanctions list who has challenged it. We know there are multiple people like Roman Abramovich is challenging his uh, EU sanctions. Um, But this sort of marks a landmark in the fact that we have the ECJ overruling uh, sanctions, which have been in place on Alexander Sholgin, who is the former chief executive of Russia's e-commerce giant Ozon, and he was sanctioned because of his alleged links to Vladimir Putin. So that's an interesting one, and I think that will basically create a slight precedent where more Russian oligarchs will employ or get basically demand that their lawyers look at the fine text and basically pour over the legal reasoning that EU officials used in their sanctions and they will be testing basically if they are watertight. And then another slight interesting story comes from Spain with the Spanish energy minister saying the European Union has no short term plan to ban imports of Russian liquefied natural gas. So as we know, as part of those EU sanctions packages, the EU has banned the majority of imports of Russian oil, gas, and the gas is pipeline gas mainly, and coal. But liquefied natural gas has not been banned. And some figures that came out maybe the week before last demonstrated that Spain and Belgium only trail China as the world's biggest importers of this liquefied natural gas. And that's sort of a massive resource for Vladimir Putin in fueling his war in Ukraine. So there's lots of arguments around to suggest that liquefied natural gas should be banned. But the Spanish economy minister is basically saying there is a feeling of scarcity and fear. That's what he told Reuters. So it's basically saying that while the EU doesn't ban liquefied natural gas, its member states fund... Vladimir Putin, through the tune of billions of dollars, basically there are a few people, Spanish especially, because they're one of the main global importers of that and exporters of liquefied natural gas. They're basically worried that come the winter, the EU is going to start running short of these natural resources again after managing to
1: survive last winter. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Joe and Arthur. Well, let's now go to Sophia Yan, our China correspondent and investigative journalist Jack Leather. Sophia and Jack, you're just back from Kazakhstan, having looked at the impact of the Belt and Road Initiative 10 years on from when it started. I I think we'll sort of get into the Russia angle here as we go through the story. So let's just start with the story on its own terms. And of course, we need to add we've got James Kilner here, Telegraph correspondent and editor for the Central Asian and South Caucasus Bulletin, a weekly newspaper on the region. So, James, you're listening as well. Do feel free to add your thoughts and uh, your nuance where you'd like. But Sophia, can you talk us through the story? Why were you in Kazakhstan?
4: So this is the 10-year anniversary of when Chinese President Xi Jinping announced the Belt and Road Initiative. This is his main foreign policy plan. It's all about China going out and growing its global influence and improving its connectivity with the world. Chinese-funded projects like rail lines, ports, highways. It's the modern Silk Road. It's a throwback to the ancient trade route that connected east to west. And so it makes sense 10 years ago that she went to Kazakhstan to launch this program. Kazakhstan itself shares a very long land border With China's Xinjiang region. But this growing cooperation between the two countries has also meant that Beijing's got this opportunity to export its human rights abuses abroad. So this horrific crackdown that we've all heard about in China, that's going against the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs. In Xinjiang, there's a lot of coverage on this. We're talking torture, rape, political indoctrination. This is the kind of stuff that's now starting to extend outside of Chinese borders, happening along the Belt and Road. And the area that we focused on uh, in this short documentary that Jack and I. But together is this area called Horgos. It's a special trade zone that straddles the border between China and Kazakhstan. We met a woman whose cousin, a Kazakh citizen named Askar Azatbek, was kidnapped by Chinese agents from the Kazakh side. And he's now serving out a 20-year prison sentence in China for alleged espionage. So this is a human rights, uh, human rights abuses in China that are extending outside of the country because really the big picture look here is that China has an interest And trying to pacify Xinjiang to ensure that there are no challenges to Communist Party rule, because there have been in the past, even a few bouts of independence over the last hundred years. If that were to happen, it would impact whether or not Beijing was successful in implementing its economic programs like Belt and Road. And then if you pull out even further from that, greater Chinese involvement in Central Asia... These are countries that were part of the former Soviet Union. This is really changing the balance of power in the region. I mean, these are countries that used to be much closer to Russia. Some of them are rethinking what that looks like. Some of them perhaps not really sure what to do. And Kazakhstan is right, is literally right in the middle of all of this.
1: Well, thanks very much for the overview, Sophia. Would you like to just briefly put this all in greater strategic context? And then we can talk a lot more about how Russia and the war in Ukraine fits into this and what's changed with the war in Ukraine.
4: Well, any sort of major global trade right now involving China is really linked to Russia too. There's so much trade between these two countries. They are two nations that have spent so much time building this relationship with each other. And there's so much that you can see in terms of how they're trying to build build upon what they what they do together. You know, China has been in many ways supporting Russia through trade, not sending the obvious stuff like tanks across the border kind of thing, but they're sending just basically everything but Little uh, things like spare parts or chemicals and machinery, things that can help support Russia in the long term. So this is a a relationship that is really very strong. And you have to remember that both Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin, they have both invested in this. And for Xi in particular, the war in Ukraine, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. It's not something that China necessarily wants to see drag on because it puts them in a really bad position. But because Xi Jinping made Putin his best friend on the world stage, it's going to be embarrassing for him to pull out at this point.
1: Well, thanks very much, Sophia. Let's go to Jack Lever.
5: Um, What's changed with the war in Ukraine? Hi, David. Yeah. So obviously, Kazakhstan has got its strong historical links to Russia. And those are also financial. So for instance, there was a major uranium deal signed earlier this year, we don't know the exact value, but the rumours are that it was worth about a billion dollars. But we very much saw, as we were making this documentary, that the situation is changing in Kazakhstan. The war in Ukraine has made Russia totally toxic, not just for Kazakhstan, but for other countries in the region. And especially the Wagner mutiny has moved the dial further away from Russia, and more and more Kazakhstan and other countries in the area are looking towards China. There's another phenomenon that we became aware of in Kazakhstan, which is that the younger generation are looking positively at a more authoritarian China. There's not the same xenophobia that there was at some stage. And let's face it, the West has left a vacuum in this area. And therefore, Kazakhstan is looking to stronger countries in terms of people to align themselves with. Could we just go back to that point, Jack, you made about the Wagner mutiny? Because it's not something I'd considered
1: before. What what exactly was the impact uh, in in, in terms of what you saw
5: um, from the mutiny on, on attitudes to Russia? So in terms of the conversations we had, both when we were in Kazakhstan, but also talking to a lot of experts on international relations, especially in that region, was that there was already a feeling amongst people that Russia had become a bit of a liability, but I think the Wagner coup really showed their vulnerability and therefore it it has really pushed countries to think, hang on a minute, is this country really, despite having the historical and financial links, is this really a country that we can rely upon? And when you have China there almost waiting, it seems like it's an obvious place for countries to turn to. Could you tell us a little bit more, Jack, about
1: the, the sort of changing attitudes towards Russia? I know you spoke to lots of very interesting people when you were out there
5: yeah, so as people will see in the documentary, which is which is on the telegraph 's uh, YouTube channel, um, in the documentary, we speak to this fascinating bird watcher who 's called Vladimir Muravsky, who takes Westerners on tours around Kazakhstan. And he described it really well when he said that Kazakhstan has always been stuck between two empires, always been stuck between Russia and China. And I had a conversation with a Russian teacher in Almaty, a 27-year-old, who has only just moved to Kazakhstan from Russia, and now teaches maths to 11 and 12-year-olds. And he says that within Russia, there's this real generational gap in terms of attitudes towards the war in Ukraine. So amongst his cohort, he said, amongst Under 30s. He said about 10% were in favor, about 20% were on the fence, and about 70% are against. And how that has manifested itself is a lot of people like him have moved to Almaty, have moved to other countries in the region. And he was really positive about the way that he had been treated since he'd moved to Kazakhstan. He said he felt like a real guest, although he still wanted to go home to Russia one day, he'd felt really welcomed. On the flip side, people we spoke to Kazakhstan, who are people who live there, so Kazakhs in Almaty were not so positive about this influx of Russians. Several people said to us that this influx has driven up prices, in particular rent. And also there was a feeling amongst some people that the Russian expat community in Almaty believes in a way that it's essentially in its backyard and can behave uh, as they like. And just finally on this, one really interesting comment was that there's a very different attitude towards the first wave of Russians who came over and the most recent wave. So there's a feeling that maybe the most recent have come more to miss the draft rather than real opposition to the war in Ukraine. That's really fascinating, Jack. Thanks so much. Sophia, can we go back to you? Can you tell us
1: about this factory you visited with Jack on the border there? I think that's really fascinating and really gives us a sense of how goods are moving across these borders and towards Russia.
4: Yeah, so in, in, in Horgos we went to this factory that is producing diapers, sorry, nappies and sanitary pads i'm still get i'm still getting it the britishisms and so this factory in particular is actually in the special economic zone this bilateral cooperation area between china and kazakhstan invested by afghans producing goods for sale in kazakhstan and also for export to russia so this is part of the big vision that that xi jinping had for belt and road that this linchpin or this buckle on on the Belt and Road, this little area between China and Kazakhstan would become a, a flourishing hub. Like the next you buy. So you would have factories producing for export. You'd have warehouses for all these things that are... Getting sent around between east and west that you 'd have a duty free shopping zone, and then of course, tourism and, and travel would flourish, more business and investment would come along, and both sides would benefit, but that hasn 't necessarily materialized and this factory was of particular interest because we were taken over there to see it by representatives of horgos and this is something that they want to showcase, and even this bit that they would like to highlight i mean this just gives you a sense of what we 're really talking about in terms of increased cooperation with china i mean this is a fairly small project. It was a small factory. And it is a, a way for China to export its know-how. The factory was populated with mostly Cossack workers, but the main manager overseeing the plant was a Chinese man who had been brought in to teach them how to use the machines, which came from China. So it's about Chinese technical expertise, exporting Chinese labor, using Chinese money to build projects that then will perhaps generate some sort of boost for the Chinese economy. And so in many ways, this 10 years on, this program seems like it's possibly always been one-sided for China. It, was, it always meant, perhaps, always that they would come out on top and be the winner. It was, of course, sold as something that would be fair and and, and, and beneficial for everyone. Rising tide floats all boats. That's this kind of idea. But again, 10 years on, that's necess- not necessarily the case. And for this region, you have to really think about where we're, what we're talking about here. Central Asia is really, it's not its not a far cry, I would say, to, to call it the middle of nowhere. I mean, where Horgos itself is not so far from this area called the Eurasian Pole of inaccessibility. It is literally the farthest point on land from the ocean on the entire planet. So there's not a lot of interest, or there hasn't been historically in this region from the West, for instance, you know, and so now China's coming in, they want to pump money into this area. And for this for Kazakhstan, for Central Asia, again, they were looking before to Russia, maybe looking also to China. But now Russia, at least for Kazakhstan, may not be uh, as great of a partner going forward. So China's there to fill the gap.
1: Well, you both said so many interesting things there. I'm very, very glad we've got James Kilner on the call as well. James, everything that Sophia and Jack have talked us through, I mean, what's your take on it? Um, what, would you like to add, add your thoughts and your nuance to their reporting?
0: I think, well, hi, hi, David, hi, everyone else. I think Sophia and, and Jack have, done, have summed it up really nicely, actually. This, the issue with China and Central Asia is deep-rooted and, and has been an issue for for two decades or, or more, the, the sort of the period I've been living in and reporting on Central Asia. And it's really, it's, it's really as Sophia and, and Jack were saying, it's really a lack of interest from the West and Russian weakness, retrenchment which has allowed China to come in, in many, many guises, under many guises, not just the Belt and Road Initiative, but also the Shanghai Corporation Organization, through its utter dominance of um, of the biggest client, utterly the biggest client for all Central Asian gas, uh, it completely pops up with the entertainment economy, etc. But in particular, there are just a couple of uh, incidences, historical incidences, which I just want to highlight, which really show how China has been able to capitalise on on Russian weakness and and the West's typical disinterest in long-term planning. Russia, for example, was slated to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a new hydro system, a hydro dam system in Kyrgyzstan, and it pulled out in about 2014, 2015, when there was a um, a crash in the price of oil and uh, running out of cash. Last month, China signed uh, what the Kyrgyz officials are saying was the biggest economic deal in its history, up to $3 billion project to build new hydro power stations, really showing the economic might of China. I mean, everywhere you go, the road systems, the rails, electricity, the electric cars, the tunnels, etc., it's mainly Chinese built. And here we are, the Kyrgyz are celebrating this big deal. About a week later, the Kyrgyz prime minister was in Xinjiang province signing another energy deal with China. So normalizing and whitewashing the, the terror that Chinese have been perpetrating on the Uyghur people and ethnic Kyrgyz as well and, and ethnic Kazakhs in Xinjiang province. And then also at the end of last month or beginning of this month, there was another $400 million project dangled by more Chinese companies in Tajikistan this time, really showing huge amounts of wealth they can chuck at Central Asia. Um, uh, this is important because China can, the Chinese leadership can just click its uh, fingers and the Central Asian leaders have to go to Beijing and, and have a conference uh, um, and basically get their orders. So China has huge power and influence in the region. As we know, as listeners of this podcast understand, it's an ally of the Kremlin. If it's so wanted, it could use this influence to push Central Asia more into the Kremlin camp. That's why we we keep on talking about it. As we know, Central Asia and South Caucasus has been used by um, uh, companies to help skirt around sanctions on Russia with the figures are enormous, like 400% increase in washing machines, which are then stripped, and then the, the microchips sent to Russia, that sort of thing. Cars, secondhand cars from America, Then sold on from Armenia to to Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So there's that to consider. And all the while the West has increasingly little influence in the region. Really, after 2014 major drawdown by NATO forces in Afghanistan, it lost a huge amount of interest in Central Asia. It was using Central Asia as a launch pad for its forces in Afghanistan main air base that it was using to fly soldiers in from was a uh, Manas air base outside, Manas airport outside Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan. The French had a base in uh, Dushanbe in Tajikistan. Germans had a base in Uzbekistan, et cetera, et cetera. When the withdrawal happens, and this is actually one of the reasons, I think, that the, the West and the U.S. was so supine so around the original invasion of Ukraine in 2014, the annexation of Crimea, and the uh, invasion into Donbass, a few months later, it was trying to withdraw its kits from Afghanistan via Uzbekistan and then via Russia uh, on this railway system. It dumped a lot of kit in uh, Uzbekistan, but it also used Russian railway to get some out. So, and then so, so since then, it's really lost a huge amount of interest in Central Asia. Uh, the Chinese have been able to increase their interest. They're masters of long-term strategy. They own huge swathes of the energy industry. Uh, they did a deal in the end where they, you know, they take a lot of camp stones, low enriched uranium. The first delivery of, was made in December last year. All, all, all this sort of thing points towards uh, increasing Chinese dominance of the region. Thanks so much, James,
1: for that. Sophia and Jack, anything to add to James' comments there? Or if not, we'll go back to him in a second. But uh, Sophia, yeah.
4: What James mentioned about reiterating this idea that the West has has not been so interested, I think this is a really important point. As far as I'm aware, no U.S. president has ever visited a Central Asian nation on an official visit. They have some meetings on occasion, but not the sort of big hoopla, the big fanfare. And usually it's the Secretary of State who goes. Blinken went to Kazakhstan earlier this year in February. And it's a region that's really pretty ignorative for our listeners, if you're able to, I would really recommend you pull this up on a map and look at where these countries are located. It's pretty stunning. They're surrounded by China, Iran, Afghanistan, and Russia. And so this region, I mean, it's very much landlocked. It is smack in the middle of a lot of these countries that are very complicated for very different reasons. But you can see why this particular region, why Central Asia could become a real flashpoint going forward.
1: Thanks very much, Sophia. Uh, Joe Barnes, I know you have some things to add as well. Yeah, going back to sort of the idea that Kazakhstan is being ignored by the
2: West is, is certainly true, but I think it is now really coming into a, a Western eye because of well, like the world's Western sanctions on Russia. So as James was saying earlier about how washing machines were being stripped down and and uh, then sold sold into Russia as microchips and stuff being used to repair Russian tanks as sort. I, I've covered multiple stories on the back of that, speaking to sort of officials involved in the sanctions. And Kazakhstan's one place they've got their eye on, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan. And while it's not top-level politicians going there, it's actually uh, sort of the high-ranking officials who are making trips there. And I remember one of the um, talks recently, um, I'm just trying to find the date of it on my notes, it's back dates back to March, there's some talks in Kazakhstan with the Kazakh government on the circumvention of sanctions by Russia. And they they convinced uh, Kazakhstan to almost side with the West, to forget its sort of historical ties with Russia. And they're they're now deploying, I don't know how effective it is, it's probably something that we should follow up on, some sort of real-time tracking system that enables, whether it be the UK, the EU, the US, to monitor what happens when goods cross from their kind of territories into the likes of Kazakhstan, and then potentially onto Russia so they can get a better picture of how sanctions are being circumvented. And uh, so that it's, it's interesting to see how, yes, Kazakhstan, that sort of area in the, in the world has been ignored. But now it's come into focus and actually Kazakhstan probably sees an opportunity to work with the West as much as it does with the likes of China and Russia and kind of position itself as somewhere as a gateway keeping everyone connected in that part of the world.
1: Thank you very much, Joe. James, can I come back to you? I know you want to give some more context on on Russia's sort of grip of on Central Asia.
0: Really quickly, David. Um, just to remind listeners that the reason the Kremlin, one of the, some of the in brief, some of the reasons the Kremlin has so much influence over Central Asia perva- pervasive influence. For, for a start, uh, the longest continuous land border in the world is uh, the Kazakh-Russian land border, and there's a huge ethnic minority, Russian ethnic minority. Already in, in North Kazakhstan, which speak Russian, etc. Although China has huge economic clouts in the region, a lot of the political, linguistic, societal, educational links and influence is still the Moscow Central Asia axis. So the generation of leaders in Central Asia at the moment were often schooled in or went to university in Moscow. These are generally still Soviet guys who grew up in the Soviet Union, did time in the Soviet army or or, or whatever. And the security forces, the Russian security forces also have huge influence inside Central Asia. It's not simply the case that although Russia has been edged out of business and economic projects, it doesn't have levers to pull it, it does. So January last year, before the war in Ukraine started, the month beforehand, it was Russia who led a security project to back up the Kazakh government when. Widespread protests threatened to to uh, t- to unseat it. Uh, the Chinese are just not at a level where they can get involved in security issues at the moment.
1: James Kilner, we've reported on the on some of the movements and news from Armenia recently on the podcast, but you are the expert in this area. So can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on?
0: So this is really has overlapped with the story that we've just been talking about—the sort of decline of Russian. Influence. This time, it's it's focused on Armenia, and Armenia um, is obviously a, we spend sort of an outsized part of our reporting uh, looking at at our, what's going on in Armenia because it's it, it sort of it's it's shifted in the past eighteen months from being a hardcore Russian ally to trying to spin out of Kremlin's orbit. This week, it was announced that the U.S. and Armenia are going to stage a joint military exercise in Armenia from Monday. Um, as far as I'm aware, this is the first time, and I'm, I'm happy to be corrected, but it's the first time that American soldiers have held a joint exercise with Armenian troops in Armenia. There, were, there, there was previous talk about Armenian troops being involved in, in a US military exercise in Europe, but this is the first time it's happened in, in Armenia, as far as I'm aware. The Kremlin has al- already said it's incredibly concerned about this. Russia keeps one of its largest overseas bases in Armenia. Now, the so so this is a, this is a clear indication after months and months and months of grumbling about the Kremlin that Armenia is definitely shifting towards a more pro-Western stance. Last summer, some top U.S. officials visited Yerevan for the first time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this has been coming for a while. Now, what this really boils down to is uh, the Armenian leadership perceived lack of support from the Kremlin against Azerbaijani aggression. There was a war in 2020 in Nagorno-Karabakh, which uh, Azerbaijan, which has a very close uh, alliance with Turkey these days, uh, won and defeated uh, Armenia. And since then, it's been increasingly aggressive towards Armenia. It's currently blockading one of the only Armenian towns in Nagorno-Karabakh. Various international calls have told them to release the sort of blockade, etc., etc., And on Sunday, sorry, Saturday, I reported on Sunday, Nikol Pashinyan, the um, Armenian prime minister, gave a very long, quite rambling interview to Italian media, basically saying that he thought, slightly room between the lines, but he thought that Russia was now too distracted by its war in Ukraine to be able to back up its historical ally Armenia. And he also said that he thought that well, he inferred that Armenia was being punished by not, for not giving Russia full-throated support around its invasion of Ukraine by a lack of Russian support against Azerbaijani aggression. So we've really got a very clear example here of how Russia's been trying to throw its weight around in its former domain and is getting increasingly frustrated by a lack of Support. It thought that the Central Asian states that we've just been talking about would be fully behind its invasion of Ukraine. It, it totally misread that they weren't. It thought that Armenia would be fully behind again. It Misread that. And here you have Pashinyan, the Armenian Prime Minister, on over the weekend saying, "We're being punished for not being strong enough in backing the Kremlin." A few days later, he says the US are going to come do war games in Armenia. Really, really remarkable stuff. I could never have. Picture this: a year ago, it comes roughly at the same time that um, Armenia, the Armenian Parliament's now considering membership of the ICC. If, if we remember earlier this year, the ICC put an arrest warrant out for Putin. So again, shifting towards the Western institutions, uh, he's al- also suggested that or hinted at the that, that Armenia would be interested in leaving the CSTO, which is a Kremlin-linked uh, security organisation. So it's pretty clear that Armenia is trying to break free or perhaps has already broken free uh, to some degree of Russian influence. And it all comes back to this war that Vladimir Putin triggered in Ukraine.
1: Well, thanks very much, Sophia, Jack, Joe, and James, and earlier Arthur. We've talked about an awful number of subjects here, but I think it's been really good to go into some depth to talk about Central Asia and the Caucasus. So thank you so much for all of your thoughts and reporting. Let's move to our final thoughts, though. Joe Barnes.
2: All right, yeah. So my final thoughts to, to, uh, for today relate back to the battlefields. So I know um, one of our listeners the other day was saying, why don't we talk about the front lines more often? And I appreciate, yeah, we do, we, we do get kind of locked talking about the bigger fights going on in for bovey Robotinay and bakhmut but some interesting sort of news out of ukraine especially when lots of criticism has been bestowed on the ukrainians for their apparently slow counteroffensive and as i mentioned we narrow down our sort of view often to the very the bigger areas of the front line but we often don't appreciate that the front line is over 600 miles long and um, there has been some new Ukrainian gains. It's only about, well, it's just shy of two kilometres squared in a place called... Um, I couldn't actually find the English pronunciation, so I fi- hopefully I've done it justice. Opeti, or Opetin, so it's like like, Ro- like Robotin Opetinia, which is just north of Donetsk Airport. So Donetsk Airport was captured in 2014, I think the September... In 2014, as part of the first sort of the initial Donbass War, where Russian Green men invaded the Donbass and backed separatists to seize land there. But Ukraine seems to be pushing south into the area near Donetsk Airport for the first sort of time. So the area where they're fighting, again, it's only small, but it's 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 near Avdivka, so sort of southwest from where the main fighting in Bakhmut is. And it just makes me think that yes, we concentrate on the the, the bigger sort of the more active zones. Where are the Challenger twos? Where are the Leopard twos? Where what's happening in Bakhmut because of its political significance? But actually, does that play in to Ukraine's tactics? They make a big deal of the, the main three axes on of the assault of the counteroffensive. But are they now starting to take Russian resources away from elsewhere on the front line and starting to find small openings? And actually, can they like come up with a numerical advantage in certain areas where they can then punch through and start reclaiming land that was taken in 2014. That would be, uh, we, it's happened before in small areas in Donetsk, I believe. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. But the, does the fighting elsewhere give them more opportunity to start almost sneaking in and taking back land that Russia sees in 2014? It makes me think that, um, and I will be looking towards more sort of smaller battles on the front line i think over the weekend see if we can paint a better picture of that in the weeks to come
5: thank you very much joe barnes sophia yan would you like to go next it's actually jack here first i just want to again remind people that our documentary on china's belt and road is on our youtube channel and and if you subscribe you'll see more of our documentaries and other videos We produced um, a three-part series called Inside Xinjiang in 2021, which for people who are interested in the region uh, is worth a watch, and it sets up a lot of the issues that we discussed in the, the documentary that we released yesterday.
4: And on top of that, in the Sunday Telegraph, please do take a read. We've got a long dispatch out of Kazakhstan about these issues, so I hope everyone will have their cup of tea or a cup of coffee and take their time reading those words something that we would obviously all very appreciate here in The Telegraph. And amazingly, I'm actually in London, so not Taipei. <laughs> and if there's anybody listening, any interesting folks, got interesting ideas to share, I'm always all ears, so please do reach out.
1: Well, thank you very much, Sophia and Jack. And yes, just to add to Sophia's point there, it's really lovely seeing you here in London. Um, what a pleasure not having to coordinate time zones for, for, for this podcast. James Kilner, would you like the very final words?
0: And only to urge people to go and uh, watch uh, Sophia and Jack's excellent documentary. I watched it last night and really enjoyed it and I thought it's really insightful. As far as news is concerned, um, I'm on the desk this weekend, which I'm looking forward to, and, and all next week. And the two stories that I'm immediately looking, looking to are these regional elections in Russia. We covered it last weekend. Uh, Putin's United Russia Party is in trouble. In one of the uh, remote regions in Siberia that it's been targeting, its candidate withdrew from the election last weekend. So that's going to be very interesting to watch. And actually, we've seen, just to remind readers really quickly, we've seen the United Russia candidates drop their hugely jingoistic pro-war campaign literature and and slogans for uh, more anodyne um, issues. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out in the Kremlin's reaction, et cetera. That uh, voting is starting today and running through till Sunday. So I'd imagine results will be on Monday or maybe Sunday evening. And then only um, and the other issues, is obviously, these U.S. war games, joint military exercise in Armenia and the Kremlin's reaction. If we think back to earlier this year when Armenia said it was potentially going to join the ICC, the Kremlin put a trade embargo on dairy products from Armenia. What are they going to do this time? Let's find out.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message, and you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine the Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.
4: Planning for your next trip?